Uh, Before we really get serious with this polling, you know, aren't all superheroes basically social justice warriors? (laughs) I'm not touching that one, Galen. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We are back to the primary cycle this week with contests in seven states, the most contests of any week this year. Today, we're going to zoom in on some of the races to watch in California, which has more competitive races than many other states, maybe more competitive races than any other state, thanks to its independent redistricting commission and top two primary system. We'll also have a podcast later in the week recapping contests from across all seven states, so don't worry, our coastal bias will be evened out. This week also marks the beginning of the January 6th committee public hearings. They'll begin this Thursday, June 9th at 8 p.m. So today we're going to preview what we can expect from those hearings and take a look back at which past congressional hearings have been able to garner enough public attention to change minds and history. And because we could all use some lighter news these days, we've got a good or bad use of polling on superhero movies. Do they have partisan followings? Is Batman too rich to be anything but a Republican? What is Superman's immigration policy given his extraterrestrial origins? How would Thanos' Malthusian ideology reshape American politics? (laughs) Uh, We will answer at least one of those questions. Here with me to discuss our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Galen. That was, that was quite the tease for the for the superhero segment. Wow. I mean, you know, I, uh, I'm excited for the summer blockbuster season. Uh, <laughs> also here with us is elections analyst, Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. And also here is 538 editor, Maya Swedler. Hi, Maya. Hey, Galen. Okay. So in honor of summer's impending arrival, which... I think might be debatable. According to this podcast, we might already be in summer, although I understand that according to government bureaucracy and other cultural norms, we aren't in summer yet. We had this debate before. The great equinox solstice (laughs) debate, yes. (laughs) I take the position that summer starts on June 1st, and I had written that into the script, like as, oh, it's already summer. Uh, Chad, my editor, changed the script to say that we're approaching summer. Um, Chad would be right. So, Not summer yet. <laughs> Chad would be, I guess, correct according to like AP standards, incorrect according to more important cultural standards. And what do we have if not culture? Science? <laughs> summer sol- <laughs> Astronomy? Summer solstice? Like, I mean... Okay. Anyway, that's not the debate for today. The debate is about superheroes. So the polling firm Echelon Insights decided to try to uncover the partisan leanings associated with superhero fandom and summer blockbusters. According to their recent poll, the three most popular superheroes in America are, in order, drumroll, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. When they broke down preference by partisanship, they found that there weren't overwhelming trends in terms of who Republicans and Democrats preferred, except in the case of Black Panther and Wonder Woman. 18% of Democrats said Black Panther was their favorite superhero when allowed to pick three favorite superheroes, compared with only 3% of Republicans. And 26% of Democrats said Wonder Woman compared with 18% of Republicans. So a pretty wide gap for Black Panther, a smaller but still significant gap for Wonder Woman. Uh, Before we really get serious with this polling, you know, aren't all superheroes basically social justice warriors? I'm I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I mean, in the sense that Maybe some of them are a little more difficult to to parse. Uh, you know, for example, Batman is a bit of a law and order guy, uh, if you mm-hmm. haven't noticed. Um, so, you know, it's possible that someone who, you know, wants to see crime sort of be the focus of things might really like Batman. And, and obviously we've seen polling Republicans are a bit more worried about crime than Democrats, um, though, to be clear, Democrats are worried about it, too. Uh, you know, at the same time, though, I think Batman has, I mean, his, what, the the character behind Batman is like, Bruce Wayne is like, rich guy who gives a lot of money to things, and I don't know, maybe has liberal personal leanings, I don't know. Um, so anyway, I th- it's probably complicated to some extent. 
I love the seriousness with which you're answering this question. Yeah, I think vigilante justice is not actually... I'm I'm going to be totally honest. Chad, I think, jokingly wrote that question into the script this morning about whether all superheroes <laughs> are social justice warriors. So thank you, Chad <laughs> Matlin. Um, and thank you, Jeff, for taking that question seriously and, you know, getting us off on the right foot. This is serious stuff. We've got to talk about the information that we're learning from this extremely serious polling. So is this a good or bad use of polling? And before I let you sort of lay out your arguments, I just want to do a survey. Sarah, good or bad use of polling? I mean, I think the poll itself is fine. Um, You know, they let people pick three options. um, And I think, you know, it's really telling that the fourth most popular option was none of these 18 movies. And I think we'll see time and time again in some of the questions that Americans just don't really care about, about superheroes. Love it. Love it. Maya, good or bad use of polling? Good use of polling. Maybe not the most important use of polling, but not objectionable. Okay, Jeffrey, good or bad use of polling? Oh, I think it's a really good use. You know, let's just, let's dig into every little aspect of the American population and then try to connect it back to politics. Because usually we can. Uh, this one might be a stretch though, but I, but I appreciate the effort. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. We usually don't have this much agreement on the podcast. What about the argument that, I mean, if you look at how the partisan affiliations of these superheroes break down, In large part, there are no partisan differences. So I would say you could argue that there's a bad use of polling in the sense that, like, you're trying to over-apply a lesson of American political cultural life, which is that, yes, we do have partisan divides, and apply it to everything, even superheroes. Like, can't we all just have superheroes? Except Black Panther, apparently. That that was the really, uh, the superhero that stood out to me. I know that in the write-up, it was saying that there was a difference between Democrats and Republicans on Wonder Woman, which is true. It was just a much smaller difference. Republicans, you know, did not like Black Panther. And there also aren't a lot of Black Republicans, um, which I think is what you're seeing reflected there as well. Yeah. I mean, since you all think this is a good use of polling, what lessons did you learn from it? I feel validated that a lot of Americans don't like superhero movies. I I myself fall into that category, so a little biased. I learned that there are at least 18 superheroes. I was going to say, I think it's actually fascinating that there really aren't too many splits. And, you know, honestly, I would have guessed maybe larger differences for, you know, some of them like Superman or Batman. Like I might have expected Republicans to have slightly larger advantage than they they do in terms of which ones they prefer. So it's interesting to me that Black Panther is really the one that sticks out so much. Although again, as to Sarah's point, it's not that surprising, I guess. Right. No, that's a really good point, Jeffrey, because like later on in the poll, they asked respondents what types of movies they like. Um, and again, superhero movies did not rate highly, but that's not my point. Patriotic movies, 42% of respondents said that they liked movies that were patriotic. And I think you could argue Superman, kind of patriotic in some ways. But there was actually a huge partisan split on that between Democrats and Republicans with more Republicans liking patriotic movies. And I do think there's like the anti-superhero and more of like the traditional Superman clean cut, um, you know, rah, rah. And it's just interesting that like the really top line isn't that many divides in terms of who Americans like as superheroes. But there are a lot of divides in the terms of the types of movies Americans want to see. What should we take away from the fact that the main lesson here is that the rare black superhero and rare female superhero have the most liberal followings? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that there are also two superheroes that have kind of had resurgences recently, like they've had movies in the last couple of years. This could also be showing, you know, some splits in age. Younger voters, perhaps lean more democratic, might lean towards the superhero movies that they've seen more recently versus the more established properties where older voters perhaps not only have seen a couple versions of these movies, but have read read comic books as well. Mm, So a couple divides going on, maybe not only racial and gender. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely seemed to be a bias towards younger people being more familiar with these uh, franchises like Deadpool. I, I actually don't know what Deadpool is in terms of a superhero. I'm sorry. Um, so I think that is at play here. But also, like as Jeffrey was saying at the outset, like it's not terribly surprising that 
Black Panther would have lower viewership among Republicans. That's kind of what you would anticipate given other responses in the survey around wanting to see movies on racial justice um, or social justice. And also just the fact that, right, like there aren't a lot of Black Republicans. And not that, you know, the only people who watched Black Panther were Black Americans, but it was really popular among Black Americans just because, you know, it's good to see representation of who you are on the screen. All right. Well, you all agree that this was a good use of polling. So there you have it. That may be the only time that we ever talk about uh, superheroes on this podcast. I myself am one of the, what is it, like 18% of people who don't really follow superhero movies, but I thought it was interesting. So thank you for entertaining me with this. Let's talk about all of the primaries that we have to look forward to in California. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We are tracking 20 some races in California as we head into Tuesday's primaries from the statewide potentially competitive attorney general's race to the Los Angeles mayoral primary. California offers some unique insight into the divides within the Democratic Party that will be negotiated in these primaries since it's such a Democratic state. Another unique aspect of California's primary is that it has a top two system, meaning that all candidates run in the same primary, regardless of party, and the top two vote getters advance to the general. So two Republicans or two Democrats could ultimately compete in the general election in California. That, plus the fact that the state has an independent commission draw its district lines, makes the state's elections more competitive. So let's begin with, you know, we'll go, we'll begin big and then we'll go small. So let's start with statewide elections. Is it fair to say that the attorney general's race in which the appointed Democratic incumbent Rob Bonta is trying to keep his seat is the only potentially competitive statewide primary? I think that's right, although there is a, a state controller election with no incumbent that I don't think we really dug into. But, you know, the governor's race, uh, Gavin Newsom, the Democratic incumbent, survived a recall in 2021 and basically has token Republican opposition. Um, so he's going to advance to the general election, possibly against a Republican, and then probably win in the fall. And the same goes for Alex Padilla, who is the appointed Democratic senator who was appointed to to succeed Kamala Harris when she became vice president. And so he also looks good. So really, the, the main race we focused on statewide was the attorney general's contest. And why is that potentially competitive? You know, Padilla was appointed to his position. Bonta was as well. Why isn't he a shoe in for, you know, reelection? So Republicans haven't won a statewide election in California since 2006. And, you know, it's very possible that 2022 will not present many opportunities for that either. Um, so what's what's kind of the thing to watch with this contest is that there is an independent running who could conceivably finish second behind Bonta in the primary uh, on June 7th. And maybe she would have a shot of actually beating him in the general election. And that's uh, Anne-Marie Schubert, who um, is the Sacramento County District Attorney. She's a former Republican running as an independent. And basically the thought is if she could get into the general election, she's got she's sort of law and order, but is socially liberal. And so with voters pretty worried about, you know, crime uh, in California and elsewhere, of course, you know, there might be a chance to sort of run to the right of Bonta, who had sort of progressive background on criminal justice when he was in the state legislature before being appointed attorney general. And so maybe she would have the profile of someone who could actually challenge Bonta because the the two Republicans who are running, they might have a more difficult time uh, considering they have an R by their name in California, even in what's shaping up to be a good Republican year. I also think Bonta has the disadvantage of being less of a known quantity than some of the other people in appointed positions. He was a state assembly member from, from Northern California, unlike Alex Padilla, who was the secretary of state before he was appointed. So his name was on ballots mailed out to all Californians in 2020. And I think Bonta, who hasn't been in, in his position that long, has to both reintroduce himself to voters and run on a, a record that's very thin just because he hasn't hasn't been in this office for very long. 
you know, I think a theme in our conversations today is going to be, even amongst Democratic voters, there are divides over how to deal with things like crime and homelessness and things like that. And, and beyond that, also housing and schooling and things. What kind of information do we have about where the dividing lines are in California? Like, is there a sizable progressive majority that is reliably left on all of these things? Is the plurality of folks a kind of more establishment, moderate Democrat? How should we think about the dividing lines in California as a whole? That's a hard question to answer because I think they're kind of in the process of shifting. Um, One politician who I think is a pretty good example of this is San Francisco Mayor London Breed, whose rhetoric on crime, particularly in eastern parts of San Francisco that have struggled with um, higher rates of car break-ins and smash and grabs and that type of thing, um, her rhetoric has completely changed on that area. She has declared a war on the Tenderloin, which is a district that's kind of known for, for having higher rates of crime. And I think the way she's pivoted to kind of attack this issue is indicative of the way Californians who, again, like 7% of San Francisco residents are Republican. It's a very Democratic-leaning city. But I think the fact that politicians are kind of taking this indicator from their constituents and changing their approach tells us that if it wasn't a dividing line before, it's starting to get drawn in a different way now. Right. And just think about, you know, earlier in 2021, the school board recall elections in San Francisco. I mean, this piece is old, um, but it's an op-ed from Ezra Klein over at the New York Times, just kind of arguing this case of California progressivism is something that it's often pointed to as a state that pushes through, you know, policies around clean energy or really progressive things around homelessness. And yet, you know, the base in California, which which is overwhelmingly democratic, has more fractures in it than I think is often portrayed at the national level. And we've seen that more recently in elections, you know, for that recall election for Newsom last year. Yes, COVID-19 was a big factor of that. But I remember at the time, both Jeffrey and Maya reporting as well, there were huge divides among how Californians were feeling about how wildfires were being handled in the state, how things like homelessness were being handled in the state. And I do think, you know, there are some instances in which California is really fighting for what it means to be progressive. And there's not agreement in the state for what that should look like. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out that even when put to voters in California statewide, a ballot initiative that would allow affirmative action in public schools in California failed by 15 points. So, you know, obviously there are divides in San Francisco, there are divides in LA, but statewide on a question that's sort of that basically blunt when it comes to social values, you know, California didn't approve of affirmative action in public schools. But it is important by what you said that we're going to learn more about where these dividing lines are in California as we find out the results of these races in the coming days. And you have sort of zoomed in particularly on the mayoral race in Los Angeles. What are the stakes there? What's the dynamic at play? Yeah. So Eric Garcetti, the current mayor, is terming out and there are two front runners in the in the race to replace him, Representative Karen Bass and businessman Rick Caruso, who is basically self-funding this campaign. They're both running as Democrats, although Rick Caruso was a Republican till about 10, 11 years ago when he went independent for a while and re-registered as a Democrat a couple of years ago. Both of them are really making public safety and dealing with the unhoused population in LA a big priority. But again, rhetorically, they're taking very different approaches. Karen Bass is kind of a, you know, I came up as a community organizer in South LA. I have this crisis tested skill set. I've been, you know, representing your interests in Congress for, for a decade. I can come in and I can make people's lives better. Whereas Rick Caruso is kind of more of an I alone can fix it. Let me clean up the streets. I will throw money at it type of guy. Um, He's really fallen back on his tenure um, on the LA police commissioner's board as evidence of his ability to kind of deal with issues related to crime um, and public safety in the city um, and has kind of really exploded in the last couple of months. Um, Both of them are running about even in most recent polling. It's worth mentioning, I talked about the top two primary system, that in the L.A. mayoral race, you know, if a candidate does manage to break 50 percent of the vote in the primary, there is, you know, there's no runoff or general election. They just win outright. Does it look at all possible that someone could win the L.A. mayoral race outright? I mean, it looks like that's probably not going to happen. 
Um, the little polling we have on this had Bass and Caruso in like the mid to high 30s. Uh, and there are enough candidates in the race that it just might keep anyone from crossing that 50% mark. So it's it's it seems unlikely. You know, Caruso is a billionaire and he's put a lot of his own money into this race to the tune of $30 million. We've talked about money and politics on this podcast quite a bit and where it does have an effect and where it doesn't. Oftentimes, political donors pour millions of dollars into campaigns where their money ultimately won't make that big of a difference. Is a mayoral race an example of a race where money does make a big difference? Yeah, I think so, especially when you're in a position where Rick Caruso is, where you kind of have to introduce yourself to voters. Being able to spend a lot of money um, in a particularly pricey media market um, and just blanket the airwaves is super, super helpful. I think that for Caruso, he just had a much higher barrier of entry in some ways since, you know, Representative Bass has been a figure in politics for a while and Caruso just hasn't in the same way. Now, is it enough money for him to win? Like, you know, that that I don't think we can really answer. But I think for anyone who's trying to challenge someone who just has a higher name recognition profile, you need some money to do that. And there is actually somewhat of a history of candidate self-funding in the South region of the state. Um, Gil Cisneros was a lottery winner um, in the state and won a congressional seat in the blue wave election in 2018. He lost it in the subsequent year, um, but he had put about nine million of his own dollars in kind of like North Orange County, South LA, um, and did quite well for himself. You have a piece that's coming out this week, Maya, kind of breaking up Los Angeles into different political districts to try to understand, you know, the different pieces of the Democratic coalition in Los Angeles and what they may sort of believe underneath their votes in large part for Democrats. Is it clear what Bass's and Caruso's coalitions look like? How would you describe them? Yeah, I actually don't think their coalitions are geographic. One thing that's been particularly striking in recent polling is the huge gender gap that's emerged um, Mm. in this mayoral race. Karen Bass leads by about 19 points among women in the latest LA Times poll, whereas Rick Caruso has about eight points among men. Um, I think I would have expected that the San Fernando Valley would ultimately determine the outcome of this election. That's where about 40% of likely voters live. But based on the the gender and kind of the racial breakdowns. Um, Black women are strongly breaking for Karen Bass. Black men and Latino men are beginning to break for Rick Caruso, as well as white men and Republicans. That'll ultimately make the difference. And I don't think we can necessarily map that onto L.A. geography um, as well as we can map it onto other other divisions in the electorate. We will definitely be watching the returns on that race to see where this big Democratic city of 4 million people comes down when it comes to, you know, some a pretty significant difference between Bass and Caruso. But let's talk about the 16 House races that we are tracking in California. Lots of competition. What races should we be keeping an eye on? And maybe we won't go through each of the 16 in intense detail, but what are the highlights? Sure. So um, I I think really some of the the key races are actually in the Los Angeles area, which we've been talking about. Um, You have, for instance, uh, Republican Mike Garcia in the California 27th, who is fairly conservative, but holds a seat that uh, leans a bit to the left. And he might face the same person he's run against a number of times, Christy Smith. Um, he beat her twice in 2020, once in the special election, once in the general, and only by around 300 votes in the general. Um, so he's a Republican who's in danger in the North LA suburbs. Um, you also have Katie Porter, who's a Democrat uh, in Orange County, who could face a tough race, even though she's raised a ton of money. Um, her district changed a fair bit. Young Kim, another Republican who is in Orange County, um, Michelle Steele, another Republican who's, who's in Orange County. And these are seats that are, are sort of marginally either Democratic or Republican. Um, so they'll, they'll be uh, challenging to hold um, for, for either party. Um, and then I think also there's there's Josh Harder, who's sort of you get south going towards San Diego, um, who's a Democrat, again, in a marginally Democratic seat. And, and one that I'm keeping an eye on personally is uh, David uh, uh, Valadeau's district in the California 22nd. Um, which is in the Central Valley, so we're not talking about L.A. anymore. Valadeo, of course, voted to impeach uh, Trump. He was one of 10 House Republicans to to vote to impeach Trump after the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol. But unlike pretty much all those others, he's he's faced really no serious Republican challenger 
uh, in his primary. And that was maybe a little unexpected. Um, so I'm sort of interested to see just how much opposition the main Republican, Chris Mathis, who's running against him, actually how much support he actually gets there, uh, because that could be just sort of indicative of just how much that's still influencing things. Um, but that's that's another race I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah. So it's pretty notable that there are only four uh, Republicans in the California delegation that Trump hasn't endorsed and Jeffrey has named all of them. The four that Trump hasn't hit are Steele, Kim, uh, Valadeo and Garcia. Um, and so those are the four kind of marginal seats. Two of them are Democratic leaning, two of them are Republican leaning that I'm interested in. Um, the last race that I would add is Ken Calvert running in the 41st congressional district. He currently represents the 42nd, which by our partisan lean metrics is the least Republican leaning district that Trump has endorsed in. So it's pretty likely that he holds it given the way the current electoral environment is. But I'm curious to see what that margin looks like. Yeah, and actually there are two other races I should mention, which uh, are also sort of in the Central Valley, east of the Bay Area. Um, so you've got the California 9th, where Josh Harder, uh, who's the Democratic incumbent, will be running. It's Democratic-leaning. It's about nine points more Democratic than the country as a whole, uh, but again, could be in range if Republicans have a really good cycle. And then you also have the California 13th district, which is just south of the 9th, Um that's a D plus seven district that is open. Uh, Harder actually was originally running there, but then when the ninth became open, he decided, eh, I'm going to run there instead, probably because it's slightly more Democratic leaning. So the 13th is an open seat race that I think there's a lot of attention on. And I think big picture in California, and this is true of the other states voting on Tuesday as well, is just a lot of these seats, as Jeffrey and Maya were saying, are like slightly Democratic leaning or, you know, slightly Republican. And that's why Democrats are hopeful, you know, to kind of target those seats. But if the national environment proves to be, you know, very favorable to Republicans, and it's a little hard to tell at this point how it's going to shape up, you could see a lot of these seats um, falling away from Democrats. And someone like Katie Porter, I think, think will be really interesting, just given that she only represents 40% of that district now. And some of the big gains that Democrats made in 2018, I remember, you know, when we were shuttering the live blog, California, understandably, a lot of the results weren't called at that point because they vote so much by mail. But the margin for Democrats in the House just kept ticking up and up and up because of the seats they won in California. And you could see maybe the reverse happening this time around with Republicans making gains there. Of course, not on this Tuesday night, but looking ahead to to the general. Yeah, I mean, given that the way California conducts its primary and general elections is so different, the top two system, are the divides different? Are the way that people campaign different? Are we still seeing a lot of Trumpy candidate versus more establishment candidate or progressive versus more moderate or establishment on the Democratic side? Or does the top two system sort of break that down a bit. To some extent, I would say you still see some of those splits. I mean, for instance, uh, in the California 13th, you sort of have a progress, a more progressive Democrat running against a, a more moderate Democrat. Uh, and that's like a, a clear divide, even though, uh, you know, it's it's possible, actually, if, if things really went against them, that if the vote was very evenly split across what's, you know, a district that only slightly leans Democratic, you know, maybe those two candidates don't even advance somehow and two Republicans advance instead um, because of the, the top two system. But you still see, you know, criticisms of the moderate candidate, um, uh, State Assemblyman Adam Gray, regarding uh, his, his moderate positions. And, and, you know, so there's still some of these divisions despite the system. Um, but I will say that the system does at least cause, I think, part the parties to have to think strategically because theoretically at least, and we've seen this in some past cycles, it's not clear it's going to happen too much uh, in this one, but, but in some past primaries, a, a seat that maybe leaned Republican or leaned Democratic and, and the party that was you know favored there by default thought, hey, we're going to have a good shot at maybe winning this seat, but maybe they had too many candidates running. And with the top two system, you can potentially split up your party's votes so much that the other party might be able to have its two candidates finish first and second and advance to the general election, thus shutting your party out from even potentially winning the seat in November. So that's a thing that can come up. It's not coming up in too many of the races we're looking at uh, this Tuesday, but it is something to keep in mind. I actually think one place where you can see these divisions playing out is in the safer seats. Um, the top two primary system does create the more opportunity for moderate versus progressive 
um, contests in the general election. So, for example, in California's 34th congressional district in L.A., Jimmy Gomez is going to face a more progressive attorney and David Kim, most likely in the general election for the second time um, up north in the 18th. Representative Anna Eshu is going to face the more progressive Rishi Kumar, most likely, um, just because these these top two primaries do tend to funnel in in very safe districts, um, two different candidates on two different polls. Yeah, when it comes to that divide, I do want to talk about endorsements for a minute, because you mentioned that Trump has made plenty of endorsements in California, except in races where actually maybe the Republican doesn't even want his endorsement because they're running in a in a very sort of competitive um, or maybe more purple district. But on the Democratic side, or I guess the, the left side, because this isn't the Democratic Party, the Working Families Party, which has traditionally been more active in New York, um, which is where it was founded, endorsed a whole slate of candidates in California. How are they weighing in? And does it look like they're going to have a good track record in California? This is fascinating. I think the state legislature component of this, it's such an interesting year for it because there are just an obscene number of open seats. I think there are 16 in the state assembly. That's about 20%. There are 10 open seats in the state Senate, which is not just for, uh, 20% of the Senate, but half of the seats that are up this year. Um, now, granted, a lot of this is because state legislatures are terming out or are running for other offices. Um, but there's a real opportunity for a state legislature that's had veto-proof Democratic supermajorities for the last couple of years to kind of reconfigure itself. Um, and given the fact that California has an $100 billion budget surplus right now, I think it's, there's a real opportunity for the progressive movement to get involved and kind of treat the state as this, this laboratory of democracy. And it has the funding and it theoretically could have the margins to run some really original or untested policies in the state. Interesting. A little more context here. I think people mostly know that the Working Families Party is more to the left than the Democratic Party, or you could, I don't know how you want to label it, progressive, whatever. Does it seem like their candidates are going to win? I know we, we we hardly have polling in House races, let alone state legislative races, but what can we say about the kinds of candidates that they're endorsing? They seem to have taken a pretty significant interest in candidates who are farther to the left on criminal justice. I think it's pretty notable that they've um, endorsed a lot of county and district judges um, and district attorneys, but we don't have polling basically at any level of these races. So it's it's pretty tough to say how they'll do. Um, I don't think they're a super known quantity in California. I would be very surprised if the average voter knows what they represent. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see how they've marketed their candidates. Yeah, I think actually one of the things to keep in mind with something like the Working Families Party and the reason why they can have such an impact in New York is that there's a ballot line, you know, that can say, you know, you can basically candidates can have multiple ballot lines with multiple parties. And that's just not something that happens in a lot of states. Um, I think South Carolina has has that as well, uh, for instance. But but, you know, New York is mainly the place where that exists. And so it's it'll be interesting to see if something like the Working Families Party can have a greater influence in a state where that's not a thing. Yeah, well, this is all fascinating. I look forward to getting results so we can learn some lessons. I do. We've been talking a lot about California, of course. I do want to open it up and just say before we move on, are there any other races that we should keep an eye on as we're watching returns on Tuesday night. I'll let Jeffrey go into into more detail, but I think an interesting parallel to California could potentially be New Jersey, just given I think there's kind of similar races and tenors there and the sense of the types of districts that Democrats were really successful in in 2018 are now kind of more of an open question here in 2022. And a lot of it's going to boil down to who is the Republican who wins the primary there and what will that mean for the general? And by the kinds of districts that Democrats did well in in 2018, are we, we're talking sort of like- I'm talking suburbs, baby. Yeah, okay. Yes. Got it. Yes, those salt taxes, what's going to happen? Yeah, it's, to Sarah's point, uh, there are six other states actually voting uh, on June 7th in their primaries. Um, that's Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota. New Jersey is sort of the, the second tier event in terms of sort of the number of races we're watching um, you know, I think uh, probably the most interesting one there is actually Jersey, the New Jersey 7th, which is in North Jersey. 
kind of North Central Jersey, but there's a lot of debate over whether there is such a thing as Central Jersey. Um, this is this is a running joke, actually. Uh, I think the governor, Phil Murphy, has even chimed in on. Um, but anyway, in that seat, you have a, an endangered Democrat named Tom Malinowski, um, who narrowly won re-election in 2020 against Tom Keene Jr., who is like the son of a former popular governor. And there have been a lot of Keens in New Jersey politics over the last century, two centuries. Uh, so Keene is running again and could very well win. And Malinowski actually ended up being sort of getting the short end of the stick in redistricting because the the redistricting commission, which is split between Democrats and Republicans, the tiebreaker uh, sided with the Democrats. And so the Democrats map got picked and it basically shored up the other three potentially vulnerable Democratic House incumbents. But Malinowski's district got redder. Um, so he may end up being sort of the, the odd man out. Um, so that's really the, the race that I'm probably watching the most, but you also do have uh, Josh Gottheimer, um, who is sort of known as this moderate big-time fundraiser um, who ticked off a lot of progressives because he was one of the the House Democrats calling for uh, basically for for Democrats to to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill before turning to a social spending plan in 2021. That's a district where, like, again, it got bluer, so he might be okay, but Republicans are hoping to to maybe take it over. You've got Mikey Sherrill uh, in the 11th district, also New York suburbs, New York City suburbs, I should say, um, who uh, now her seat got notably bluer. I think it went from like D plus one to like about D plus 11, actually, uh, in redistricting. Um, so that's probably more of a reach. And sort of similarly, Andy Kim, who is in South Jersey, another Democrat, uh, his district swung uh, a ton actually to the left for all the way from like R plus five to D plus nine. Um, another maybe reach seat for Republicans. But again, if it's a Republican leaning environment and you see the suburbs sort of shift back to the, you know, maybe stay Democratic in large part, but shift toward the GOP to a, a large extent, you know, maybe that's a seat that Republicans could still win. Uh, so that's those are sort of the, the main races I've, I've been watching. All right. Well, a lot of big thematic questions that we have for this political environment that Tuesday night will help us start to answer. So thank you so much for laying out the stakes. We're going to talk about the January 6th hearings with our colleague Kaylee Rogers. So I'm going to say goodbye to all of you. Thank you, Sarah, Jeff and Maya. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Galen. Hey, thanks, Galen. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol is scheduled to begin its public hearings this Thursday. The committee was formed through a mostly party-line vote last July in the House, and Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are the lone Republicans serving on the committee. Over the past year, the committee has interviewed over a 1,000 people. They've issued dozens of subpoenas, including to five House Republican lawmakers. Some of the testimony has been made public, but this week begins the process of laying it all out for the public. So what will that look like, and will the public actually care? Here with me to discuss is 538 Politics and Tech reporter Kaylee Rogers. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Caitlin. So in broad terms, what is the goal of the January 6th committee? So in broad terms, what they're trying to do is get an understanding of what actually happened on January 6th and what led to those events happening, with the, the general goal being to try to find ways to prevent something like this from ever happening again. So they're looking to have a better understanding to get as much detail into the events of the day, who was involved, what they did, uh, just so we can have a better understanding of this really kind of significant moment in political history. You know, lawmakers are not prosecutors, but how does this investigation either overlap with or relate to any investigations that the Department of Justice 
is doing, which would ultimately, you know, have prosecutorial power. Right. So it's interesting. The, the Department of Justice has been investigating, obviously, the attack on January 6th since it happened. And, you know, they've they've kind of got a multi part process that's happening. They have been charging individuals who are actively participating there on the day of the attack. And so they've charged over 800 individuals. It's likely that more people are going to be charged. That's really where the Department of Justice has been focusing its investigation so far. There's been talk, uh, especially, you know, sort of pundits are like, well, are they going to go after Trump? Are they going to go after his associates? That kind of thing. Uh, and that could be the case, depending on what they find. There has been kind of some back and forth a bit between the committee and the Department of Justice during their investigation. It's been reported that the DOJ has asked for transcripts of some of the interviews that the committee has done, for example. Meanwhile, the committee has referred certain individuals who refused to come speak to them uh, and, you know, suggested that they be charged with contempt of Congress. The Department of Justice has done that in a couple of cases, you know, with Steve Bannon, just recently with Peter Navarro, but then in a couple other cases, they've declined to do so, uh, notably with like Mark Meadows, for example. So there's kind of been this uh, tense relationship where they're both doing their own investigations. They may need things from one or the other, and they've kind of got to figure out how to, to do that without necessarily, you know, spoiling what they're working on or, or potentially complicating what the other side is working on. And just to be clear about this, are we going to know if the Department of Justice is investigating Trump or his associates? Like, don't they keep those things under wrap? Yeah, they definitely keep that stuff under wraps. I mean, we have heard from some individuals will, you know, tweet if they've been contacted by the DOJ for for investigation. So things like that might leak a little bit, you know. Depending on what happens, obviously, once charges are laid, we're going to know about things like that. But yeah, I mean, the the main thing I think that answers that question is just that we know that it hasn't been written off. You know, no one at the DOJ has said, oh, absolutely not. We're not looking at Trump. We're not considering anyone to do with him. So that's still a possibility. But exactly what they're investigating, obviously, that is under wraps. And that's part of an ongoing investigation. They're not going to release things as they're currently looking into it. Okay, so that's where this stands before these hearings begin. What kind of information should we expect to learn from these hearings? The committee has been around for almost a year now. They've spent that time doing, you know, hours and hours of interviews, collecting information, documents, emails, text messages, social media posts, um, subpoenaing people and making them come in and testify for hours in front of the committee. So they've collected a lot of information, a lot of evidence about what actually took place. And now the task ahead of them is trying to present that information to the American public in a way that's clear and concise and, and tells the narrative that the committee wants to tell. And so so we're going to see, you know, bits and pieces of those existing testimonies that have been recorded or, you know, maybe pieces of testimony read out. We're going to have some live testimony during the hearings uh, that are upcoming, these public hearings. They will include, you know, they've mentioned that they have multimedia presentations available. So I'm sure that will include video that was taken on the day of, you know, social media posts tweets, whatever it may be, uh, to kind of create this narrative and craft what they've learned so far and what they want to share with the American public. And to what extent is this new information versus information that is already in the public domain shared in a new format as part of a broader narrative? I mean, it's hard to know before we actually see it. I yeah. suspect it's going to be a lot of what we already know with some new revelations kind of peppered in. The reality is that they do have access to a lot of things that you know, news media, for example, hasn't been able to gain access to, you know, they've had Trump's children come and testify before the committee. And there's reports that they, you know, plan to air some of that during the hearings. They, you know, we've seen some of, for example, Mark Meadows's text messages. Those were released to the media prior to these hearings, but there are things that they've been able to access that we haven't seen yet. So it'll be interesting to see what of that they, they make available. A lot of this is to be determined, and we will be learning it over a series of, I think, eight public hearings that are going to be aired in prime time. So unlike maybe some of the past hearings that we've been privy to over the past five years or so, this is going to be starting at 8 p.m., so designed for maximum eyeballs. And maybe this leads us to the next point, which is you've been doing some reporting on what actually makes an impactful congressional hearing. Because it, throughout history, it seems like these congressional hearings do sometimes 
have the effect of changing minds, changing hearts, and maybe even changing the course of history. But lately, we've come to expect a lot of grandstanding and hardened opinions. So what is it about, you know, historical congressional hearings that have made them effective? And is there any reason to believe that these could be? Right. I mean, if you look back at some of those kind of like golden age hearings, like the, the sort of big moments that we all think of, whether it's Watergate or Iran-Contra or the Army McCarthy hearings, you know, there's actually a few things that tie those together aside from just being a, a long time ago. Um, but that being that they were bipartisan, you know, there was a lot of bipartisan cooperation in those hearings um, as far as the members that were involved and the kinds of questions that were asked in order to reveal information. There was new information that was included. Um, so it wasn't just rehashing what had already been reported. People learned something new by watching and that kind of kept them captivated and, and glued to their TV sets back then. And also that, you know, they, they were relying on expert witnesses who, who really knew what they were talking about and were inside and, and part of the whatever it was, the topic that they were investigating. A lot of times now, you know, there's studies that show that committees will, will bring forward just kind of like bureaucratic witnesses who, who may be somewhat biased or, or tied to a current administration and are only really showing kind of one side of a story. And so the more kind of breadth and variety of, of witnesses you can bring forward, the more compelling it is. And you know, when we talk about what an effective hearing is, you know, there's a couple different ways you might want to measure that. If we're talking about a hearing that provides good information that leads to quality legislation, that's one mode of success. If you're investigating something and you want the public to be better informed and a lot of people watch it and pay attention to it and feel more informed afterwards, then that is successful. There is always, of course, a political side to, to hearings. I mean, it's Congress. There's, that's always going to be a part of it. And certainly that's the case here. And so the Democrats will will have one narrative that they're hoping people take away from this. Um, Republicans will have another. What would be sort of like a benchmark for success of this specific hearing? I think it depends who you ask. I think the co yeah. the committee members are, are hoping that it's captivating, that it, a lot of people pay attention, that it starts to become part of the, the public discourse again. You know, the January 6th attack has kind of fallen out of public consciousness as other kind of more pressing events have taken place. You're talking about gun control, talking about abortion rights, talking about the upcoming midterms. And January 6th kind of seems like in the past. And I think the committee is really hoping to resurface it and get people to really understand what took place there and, and start to reconsider how significant that day was. In the sense that they just want to change public opinion to sort of understand what really happened for the sake of us, you know, sharing a set of truths? Or are is there thought that new legislation could come out of these hearings or is it, you know, kind of change the topic for the midterms to win elections, maybe all of the above? Um, <laughs> is there like a sort of specific work product that could come out of these hearings? I think if you ask committee members, they're going to tell you it's just about, you know, having this collective understanding of, of truth to a certain degree. But, you know, I think refocusing on this ahead of the midterms would obviously be something the Democrats might prefer to have because it doesn't make Republicans, many of whom were involved in in planning the event that preceded the attack. Um, it doesn't make the, those individuals look great, and especially the, the former president and his involvement. I think with the ongoing Department of Justice investigation, were there to be some kind of charges laid against Trump or somebody close to him, having more of this evidence and information already available and already in the public consciousness could potentially soften that the surprise of that or the how shocking that might be um if you have a better understanding of of what took place and maybe the case that the department of justice might be building that could potentially be a an outcome of these hearings as far as as having an impact and being effective, you know, if you look at something like Watergate, there's polling from Pew at the time that showed that prior to the hearings, it was 31% of Americans said that they believe Watergate was, quote, a serious matter, not just politics. And then by the time the hearings were over, it was 53%. And so people, a lot of people had kind of written off Watergate at that point. And it wasn't until the hearings when they learned how much, you know, Nixon knew and when he knew it and uh, just how deep that connection went, that they started to sort of reinvigorate the, the debate around it and obviously, you know, continue to, to lead to the downfall there. So 
these can be very powerful. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what's going to happen with January 6th, but that's sort of like the precedent that that's set for how effective a, a hearing can be. Are there factors to this hearing that make you believe it will break through or the reverse? More so the reverse. I mean, when we talk about bipartisanship, this is not a committee that has succeeded very well there for a number of reasons. I mean, originally there was supposed to be a nonpartisan investigation. The Republicans, you know, shot that down. So then they decided to do an internal investigation instead. Then Pelosi blocked a couple of the Republicans that McCarthy suggested for the committee. So then he got mad and pulled all of them. So then, you know, we're left with Cheney and Kinzinger, who aren't, you know, the most popular Republicans at the moment. It leads to a framing that makes it really easy for McCarthy and similar Republicans to claim that it's just a partisan witch hunt and kind of write it off. So whatever they come up with, no matter how compelling, they can say, yeah, but you, you know, you guys had an agenda, you have a political narrative that you're pursuing. And so, of course, you're only going to show, you know, this side of the story. And I think that's going to be a really hard criticism to to counter. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the polling, there's a lot of Americans who either have already made up their mind about January 6th or think, talked about it too much already and it's time to move on, or that the January 6th committee is just a partisan witch hunt. I mean, that's a really common narrative that polls show Republican voters already believe. So I think regardless of what they show, it's going to be really hard to push against that. All right. Well, we will, of course, keep our eyes peeled and uh, talk about what we learned from the hearings back on this podcast. But let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Kaylee. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.